We are in, uh, beginning a new sermon series, and uh, the sermon series is called Theophany. And so let me, let me begin this by asking you a question. Let's say that you were hiking at the reservoir, maybe you were going up to the House of Dreams, but you're totally you know, by yourself, you just wanted some time alone. And while you're up on the, at the reservoir, up at the House of Dreams, all of a sudden God out of nowhere appears to you, right? And it's very clear that it's God, it's very clear that it's a supernatural experience. What would happen inside of you. Uh, when we read about these instances in Scripture where God appears to people, usually they're frightened. Usually they're shocked. They're somewhat undone, but whenever they leave, they are strengthened. They're empowered. They are encouraged. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we read about various theophanies when God shows up to people, and usually He shows up in order to strengthen them, to encourage them. Today, we're going to be looking at one of those encounters found in Judges chapter 6. Now, the pattern of the book of Judges is the same over and over again. Those of you who have read the book of Judges before know this. Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord, and chaos ensues. That's a good little summary of the book. God then sends a judge to rescue his people from themselves and from usually some oppressing enemy power. Inevitably, they repent, they turn back to him, and when they do so, order is restored. And then after some time, we read that the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord again, and the pattern continues. In chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Judges, this precedes Judges chapter 6 we're going to read today, we read about Deborah. She's one of the first and one of the best judges of Israel. We're told that she was a prophet and that she was leading Israel. And during that time, Israel once again entered into that pattern of doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. As a result, God allowed persecution to arrive in the form of a Canaanite king named Jabin. Now, under Deborah's leadership, the Israelites defeated his military commander named Sisera. Some of you guys are familiar with that story in the book of Judges. And the good news is is that 40 years of relative peace and order ensued. That's where we find the Israelites in Judges chapter 6, except they've begun to worship the gods of the Amorites again, and chaos is beginning to creep back in in the form of the Midianites. Let's read, if you will, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 16 as well. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now, over the next several verses, um, what happens is the author paints a picture of just how severely the Midianites oppressed God's chosen people. Back to verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites, in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand 
of Midian. But the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that over and over again, we see you, Father, using weak and frail people. We see you using people um, who doubt your goodness and who doubt your power. And Father, if we're honest, we have to admit that we oftentimes are those people ourselves, and yet you, Father, just like you chose to use Gideon, you choose to use us as well. Father, I pray that as we read this story of Gideon today, that we might actually be reminded of who you are and who we are and what it is that you're calling us to do. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. How many of you guys uh, like Greek mythology? You don't have to raise your hand, but you can if you want to. Um, when I was a kid, I loved it because, you know, in school, you'd read sometimes dry literature, um, but every now and then you'd get to read Greek mythology, and it was kind of awesome because it was filled with monsters, and it was filled with heroes, and it was filled with all this great stuff that even, you know, seven, eight, and ten-year-old little boys can get into. Some of you guys are familiar with the story of Icarus, and so the story of Icarus begins this way. The legend goes that King Minos of Crete uh, had this monster called the Minotaur. And so King Minos uh, had this man named Daedalus who was this uh, architect and this artisan, and he said, hey, I want you to build a, la- a labyrinth for uh, the Minotaur, and we're going to put him in the middle, and then we'll use it to torture people and all sorts of great stuff. It'll be awesome. And so sure enough, Daedalus, who's this, again, wonderful craftsman, builds this labyrinth, and it's just so amazing that all the people of Crete marvel at it. Well, fast forward a little bit, and, uh, and what happens is, is that Daedalus teams up with Theseus to betray King Minos of Greece and enables Theseus to kill the Minotaur. Well, obviously Minos is not happy that his big monster has been destroyed and killed and that Daedalus has played a role in that betrayal. And so rather than killing Daedalus, Minos puts him in a tall tower along with his son Icarus overlooking the sea. He doesn't want to kill his master craftsman because he wants to continue using him. And this is where the story of Icarus begins. Daedalus, this great engineer, begins collecting feathers from seagulls and from various seabirds, and he collects wax from candles, and he collects random bits of wood. And what he does is he eventually builds a set of wings for both he and Icarus. And the time comes for them to try to escape from this tall tower overlooking the sea. And before they take off to fly away and to escape, Daedalus turns to his son Icarus and he says, whatever you do, do not fly too close to the sun because the sun will melt the wax in your wings and you'll plunge to your death in the sea. If you guys remember the story, they take off and the thrill of flying out over the open ocean is so exhilarating that uh, Icarus forgets the words of his father. He disregards the voice of his dad, and he begins to fly, fly higher and higher towards the sun. And sure enough, the wax begins to melt, the feathers fall away, and he plunges to his death in the ocean. In the book of Judges, the children of Israel are a lot like Icarus. They have disregarded the voice of their father either because they've forgotten what he told them, or they refuse to listen to God's voice because they just want to do what they want to do. Either way, what we see over and over again is that the inevitable result of disobedience or not listening to the voice of our Father 
is chaos, slavery, death, and destruction. We see this highlighted in verse 10 where we read this. God's speaking, and he says, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. They had disregarded the voice of their father. The question is, in what way did the Israelites cease to listen to the voice of God? Upon entry into the promised land, Joshua reminded the people to be faithful to their covenant with God, primarily by being obedient to certain covenant standards. In doing so, they would reveal and represent God to the surrounding nations. That was part of their mission. Unfortunately, what we see immediately in the book of Judges is that the Israelites become almost indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. They at times practice child sacrifice, they practice extreme moral corruption, and most often they engage in the very idolatry that God warned them about, eventually worshiping the gods of the surrounding nations, and in this case, they worship the God, gods of the Amorites. Let me pause here for just a moment. Let me ask a question. Does all of this sound somewhat familiar? In 2023, have we as Christians become largely indistinguishable from the surrounding culture? Is this true of us? Is the morality of the average believer that different from the world around us? Do we worship the idols of the surrounding culture? David mentioned this earlier today. Wealth, power, beauty, pleasure, career, identity, sexuality. Do we worship those idols ourselves? To be fair, I think the answer to all of those questions is yes and no. There are definitely ways in which we become indistinguishable from the surrounding culture. This is especially true with many mainline Christian denominations who have, in Tim Keller's words, over-adapted to the surrounding culture and taught their people to do so as well. In other words, in an attempt to be relevant, many mainline Christian churches have simply affirmed whatever the culture affirms, and they have condemned whatever the broader culture condemns. Ironically, in their attempt to be relevant, they have become irrelevant. This is partly what happened in Europe during the 40s and the 50s. As a result, the Christian church in Europe lost its distinctiveness and has all but died out. It's why when you visit France or England or Italy, many cathedrals are more likely to be museums than meeting places for the people of God. On the other hand, there are ways in which evangelical Orthodox believers are still appropriately distinct from the surrounding culture. For years, speakers have cited a 50% divorce rate among Christians and non-Christians alike. However, when you layer actual biblical beliefs about morality, salvation by Christ alone, heaven and hell, scriptural authority, etc., etc., then the divorce rate for those people drops to around 11%. In other words, most of the people who believe in those things have a much, much lower divorce rate. The warning of the book of Judges in general, and in this story that we're reading this morning about Gideon in particular, is this. When we fail to listen to the voice of God, chaos is the inevitable result. When we fail to listen to the voice of our Father, chaos is the inevitable result. Fortunately, however, in the story of Gideon, it's not simply a warning, but it's also a message of hope. And so the question is, what hope are we offered in this story of Gideon? I think the first thing we see that's a message of hope is that God responds to the cries of his people. Let me say that one more time is that God responds to the cries of his people. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, 
He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. Now, just to use an example, oftentimes parenting is much more a matter of wisdom than it is following some set of rules. You'll, most of you will learn that as you become parents. One of the places parents need to practice wisdom is when to let our kids fail and when to come to their rescue. Now, right or wrong, Krista and I let our kids fail and experience the consequences of their failures. Uh, we did that a lot, especially when they were young, when there wasn't too much on the line. At other times, of course, we would come to the rescue whenever they called for help. Just uh, the week before Christmas, Krista and I were standing in uh, our kitchen, and May, our daughter, her phone rang, and we heard her having a conversation with Levi that sounded different than conversations between that brother and sister typically go. It was Levi calling to tell us that he had wrecked his car coming home from youth group. Turns out that his car was actually totaled. It appears that he might have been driving a little too fast on a road that he was unfamiliar with. Now, we could have responded by saying, well, hope you get a ride back to the house, Fortunately, that's not how we responded. Or we could have said, be careful walking home. That's not what we did either. Instead, of course, we responded to his call for help. We showed up. Now, part of what's going on in the story of Gideon is that the Israelites have experienced the natural consequences of their sin. They've worshiped the gods of the Amorites. They've become like the surrounding culture, and they're experiencing chaos and misery as a result. That, again, you see that happening over and over again in the book of Judges. But when they cry out to God, he responds. First, he sends them a prophet. The message of the prophet is twofold. First, he confronts them with the bad news, but then he delivers the good news. Regarding the bad news, the prophet confronts them saying, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. This is the equivalent of a parent saying to their child, you were driving too fast on an unfamiliar road it's really no surprise that you had a wreck. In this case, the prophet points out that they disobeyed God's command by worshiping the gods of the Amorites, and he points out that they have not listened to his voice. Now, there's a lot that we could go into here. I'll just mention for a moment that reconciliation begins with a courageous acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Let me say that one more time. Reconciliation begins with a courageous acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Often the party who has been wronged or offended needs to be explicit about how the sin of the offender has cost them, of how it's impacted them. And we don't have time to go into this at length right now, but I'll make a recommendation. Tim Keller has uh, written um, a book very recently called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? It's very apropos in terms of the current moment we find ourselves in culturally. It's a great treatment of biblical forgiveness that lays out a roadmap for reconciliation. Now, regarding the prophet delivering the good news, he speaks for God saying, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. In other words, God is saying, if I delivered you from slavery in Egypt, then I can definitely deliver you from the hand of the Midianites. God doesn't stop with reminding them of what he's done, however. He also reminds them of who he is. 
he tells them this. He says, I am the Lord your God. In other words, even after your seven years of worshiping idols, even after your seven years of immorality, even after your seven years of wandering away from me, I haven't given up on you. I am the Lord your God. Many of us have become like the culture that surrounds us. We've embraced the gods of the 21st century Western society. That false worship will always be accompanied by certain symptoms and sicknesses. Chaos and isolation are the long-term result of any sin. But often before we get to that point, we will experience a deep emptiness and a deep restlessness. The reason for that is your idols, though usually good, God-given things, cannot fill the infinite void within your heart. They were never intended for that. In the words of Augustine, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let me read that quote one more time. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And yet, despite the distance that we create with our sin, despite our false worship, when we cry out to God, he hears our cry and he reminds us, I am the Lord your God. I have not given up on you. So what we've seen so far in the story of Gideon is that we often, like the children of Israel, begin to worship the idols of our culture precisely because we stop listening to the voice of God. The next thing that we see in the story of Gideon is that despite his infidelity, God responds to the cries of his people. The last thing we see in this story is that God doesn't just send Gideon a message. He comes to be with him himself. That's the next point. And the point is this, that in times of trouble, God comes to be with us, beginning in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came down and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And I'm not sure if you were able to tell from the quick reading of this story, or because you know the story of Gideon already, but Gideon is a very, very normal human being with very, very normal human problems. We see that immediately in verse 11 where we're introduced to him. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, that could just fly over most people's heads. When we think about a wine press, we think about scenes from Spain or from California where people take their shoes off and they crush grapes barefoot in what looks like a wooden barrel that's been cut in half. I think we have a picture behind us over there. No offense, but I do not want wine that has been stepped on by people. Just no good on that. In the ancient Near East, however, wine presses were often large holes that had been dug into the ground, almost like a pit. As Gideon threshed wheat, he stood in the bottom of this wine press so that he wouldn't be seen by the Midianites. He was hiding because he was afraid. That's our introduction to Gideon. Let me pause here and make a point. Satan usually, maybe not always, but usually, he attacks us through fear or through pride. That's primarily how he attacks us. We see both at play throughout the life of Gideon. Early on, however, we're primarily shown instances of Gideon's fear in spite of God's promises to be with him, to give him success. It would be easy to be hard on Gideon for his cowardice, 
but we have to admit that we are not that different from Gideon ourselves. We're afraid of tithing. We're afraid of giving generously because we doubt that God will take care of us or take care of our families. Many of us are afraid to share the gospel for fear of rejection or fear of ridicule. Often we're afraid to speak up and say what we really believe or we really think is true because we're afraid of abandonment. The list of our fears could go on and on and on. And yet, despite Gideon's cowardice, God chooses him to rescue his people, maybe precisely because of his cowardice. The angel of the Lord even goes so far as to call Gideon mighty warrior in verse 12. This is the equivalent of Don Quixote renaming the swarthy farm girl Aldonza Dulcinea, which means sweetness. And if you guys remember in the story, Aldonza is quite far from being the beautiful maiden that Don Quixote imagines her to be. Instead, he sees her as someone of unparalleled beauty. He even gets into fights with people who refuse to acknowledge that. Similarly, God calls the cowardly Gideon mighty warrior, though there seems to be zero evidence for that name. In fact, instead of responding in faith to God's compliment, Gideon responds with further doubt, saying, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. In other words, Gideon says, are you sure you've got the right guy? Because I am a nobody, right? As I mentioned a moment ago, I believe Satan primarily hunts us through fear and pride. When he hunts us through pride, Satan wants to convince us that we don't need God, that we can handle things on our own. But on the other hand, when Satan hunts us through fear, he wants us to believe something untrue about God or maybe something untrue about ourselves. Satan wants us to believe that God can't be trusted. Satan wants us to believe that God is not good. Satan wants us to believe that God is not powerful enough. Satan also wants us to believe something untrue about ourselves, that we're worthless that we are unlovable, that we have nothing to offer, that we are powerless. But God comes to Gideon and calls him mighty warrior. And then in verse 14, God says, the Lord turned to him, that is to Gideon and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? In other words, God knows that there's more to Gideon than meets the eye. God knows that Gideon is created in his image. God knows that Gideon is created, as all humans are, to bring order to chaos. God knows, as David writes in Psalm 8, that humans have been crowned with glory and honor. God is reminding Gideon of what is true, that he is a child of the Most High God, and so are you. God also reminds Gideon of something else that that is true, and that's that he is not alone. Look again at verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then again in verse 15, we read, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest of Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. God called Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal. God called Gideon to cut down a totem pole devoted to the goddess Asherah. God called Gideon to save Israel from Midianite oppression. God called Gideon to fight a battle with only 300 soldiers, and each time God's reminder was, I will be with you. We may not be called to fight in military struggles, but we're definitely called to fight battles against anxiety, against disease, against depression. 
We're definitely called to fight battles against our own idolatry of wealth and power and comfort. Many of us are called to fight battles against addiction. And just like Gideon, God promises to be with us in those battles. We are capable of far more than we realize, and we are not alone. There's much more to this account of Gideon. In fact, we've only looked at the very beginning of the story. There's really two more chapters. They're filled with ups and downs. Gideon is far from perfect. That's actually good news for us. Through it all, God remains faithful to his flawed servant, and that should be a lesson for us all. Let me end this section of Gideon's story by pointing us to how he responds to the angel of the Lord's message. Verse 19 says this, Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now this account ought to remind you of something. It ought to sound familiar. We see in both the Passover and we see in the Lord's Supper this meat, this unleavened bread. Each of those meals serves as a signpost. Both meals point us ultimately to the cross. In this case, we see the sacrifice consumed by fire, but on the cross, we see Jesus consumed by the wrath of God. The end result of each of those stories is peace. Listen to how this chapter ends. Verse 22, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace.